welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. On this episode, I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Vinay Badwar. He is the Gordon F. Murray Professor and Chair of the Department of Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgery, as well as the Executive Chair of the West Virginia University Heart and Vascular Institute and Service Line. Many of you know Dr. Badwar. He is a prolific robotic mitral valve surgeon as well as a fib surgeon. And on this episode, we speak about his recent paper that was just placed in press in May of 2020, looking at the long-term outcomes of a robotic-assisted maze using cryoenergy. And I have to tell you, the results of this paper are very impressive. It reminds me of the original results that we saw with the cut and sew maze procedure performed by Dr. Cox himself. Vinay also talks with us about what these sorts of results and others uh, mean as far as the guidelines moving forward. We talk about LAA management, his specific uh, approach with LAA management, both surgically and medically with postoperative oral anticoagulation. And so I was Super excited to have this opportunity to speak with Dr. Badwar, and I'm excited to share our conversation with you with Dr. Vinay Badwar about robotic maze surgery and in feature guidelines. Welcome back, everyone, to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui. Today, I have the real special pleasure of speaking with somebody who I've seen up on the podium kind of year after year, giving huge impact talks. Dr. Vinay Badwar joins us from West Virginia University. He's the chairman at that program for the Department of Cardiothoracic Surgery. So, Dr. Badwar, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Armin, right back at you. I think I've enjoyed watching your ascension in the field and the specialty, and your listeners should be proud of your leadership and in the management of atrial fibrillation, and it's a pleasure to be with you today. Great. Thanks so much. Yeah, so something that you've been talking about more and more in a big paper that you have, and just we were just talking about earlier, that's in press, kind of due out to come any day now, is your paper entitled, I'll read it verbatim here, Robotic Assisted Cryothermic Cox maze for persistent atrial fibrillation, longitudinal follow-up. That's a mouthful, but basically for the listeners out there, we're talking about a robotic maze using cryoenergy, and you follow these patients up for essentially four years. So before we dive into the actual kind of details of the paper, can you just kind of give us a peek of, of how did you even start doing robotic mazes? Like, where did that come from? Well, thank you for that nice intro and question. If we go back some time, and I, I know that your listeners and yourself and many of the other practitioners that are doing surgical ablation, there's been a gamut of different types of innovations. 
from sternotomy, mazes, both open, cut and sew, cryo-facilitated, radiofrequency-facilitated, to then bringing them more and more less invasive to bilateral thoracotomies and uh, bipolar radiofrequency ablation and left atrial appendage occlusion to box lesions to subxiphoid, less specific ablation, shall we say, but ablation nonetheless. And, and even uniport approaches with, you know, circumferentially in the pulmonary veins and then unipolar radiofrequency ablation and even back in the days of microwave. I've had the pleasure of being in this field for a few years and essentially doing all of those procedures. The more that we see patients and while I think hybrid ablation is, is an excellent way of collaborating and to try to achieve the the least invasive option. And there are some very interesting data and good techniques with hybrid ablation that exist. There's also multiple procedures to the patient. And if I think about from a patient perspective, a patient wants to be done through perhaps one incision and done one time. Our electrophysiologists call it the one and done procedure. And while there are many different good techniques out there, that was the impetus behind sort of beginning to propagate the concept of a robotic-assisted Cox maze. Now, important thing to note in that nomenclature and the, the mouthful of the paper that you, you outlined, that it's not a new type of maze. It is the identical biatrial Cox maze three or four lesion set. The left side of lesion set, right side of lesion set, done in an open fashion, on an arrested heart, yes, on cardiovascular bypass. But it is built upon the pre-existing, shall we say, legacy of excellence in robotic surgery. And our program and many others around the world do robotic mitrals and, and other concomitant procedures with a great degree of, of precision, with excellent outcomes. And it is on that basis where the of the maze procedure in a lot more precise and regimented way was formed. Now, Dr. Chitwood uh, began doing that many years ago with the cryothermic catheter. I think this contribution that you'll see and we can talk about today is about replicating not partial maze lesions, but the entire biatrial lesion set, precisely as uh, Dr. Cox has outlined and founded in the, in the electrophysiologic basis of these lesions and done so robotically with precise heart rhythm society dictated longitudinal follow-up. And the follow-up is actually up to five years. We're reporting four years here. Okay. It makes a lot of sense coming from somebody like you who has been doing robotic surgery for a while now, right? You have a certain level of skill that you can translate probably to any surgery, right? I mean, and I don't mean to kind of overstate that, but I'm sure there's not much you can't do with a robot at this point. So can you talk to us a little bit about what sorts of things you were doing before the robotic Cox maze? You had mentioned mitrals. Are there other surgeries that, that you were very comfortable with before you started adding the maze component? Well, I think we've been doing robotic cardiac surgery for a long time. So you're correct in that statement. And honestly, it's all about the great team we have at WVU. And But even prior to WVU, I was a wonderful team in Pittsburgh where I was. It's really that core basis that allows one to progress along that robotic platform. And I've been blessed to have a great team around me and have the opportunity to help other surgeons around the country and around the world that come to learn robotic cardiac surgery to add these different elements. So 
mitral, mitral plus tricuspid, mitral tricuspid mazes, standalone mazes, and now robotic aortic valve replacement. And in the, in the last couple of years, we've helped introduce robotic AVR as a new uh, operative procedure. All of, all of these procedures are done through the identical lateral mini incision at the level of the anterior axial line. Okay. Now, you know, it's really interesting. You, you mentioned the one and done EP phrase. It's something that is coming up kind of more and more in clinic, I have to say, when I'm when I'm speaking to people. We offer here this, this hybrid, right, where it's endo-epi. But there's definitely a, a cohort of patients who choose to want to move forward with just one, one intervention, you know, one surgery. And diving into your paper, the success of this, of this approach is even higher than that, which is, has been put out by Odd in his right thoracotomy. Filbertorian arrest. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Or Damiano's. These are pretty remarkable results. I mean, 97% freedom from AFib at one year. Can you talk to us a little bit about why you think it's better? Is it the instrumentation? Is it the visualization? What is it about this that's enabled you and your team, as you say, kind of get these outstanding results? First of all, we're not overly selective, as you'll see from the detail of the patients. I mean, the median duration of atrial fibrillation was 48 months. The median age was 68. Most of them had class 3, 4 heart failure. These are not overly selective patients. These are all persistent patients as well. So they're not paroxysmal or anything like that to get these results. This is real. And the standalone patients, you know, a lot of them are standalone patients, approximately 25% were standalones. The rest were concomitant with all the procedures that I just mentioned earlier. So I wanted to state that first, that there were these were not like selected patients for that reason. If we were to jump to the conclusion based on your on your question, I would state that first of all, decompressing the heart and having a bloodless field avoids the heat sink phenomenon, which you're well aware of with other types of ablation techniques. And the second thing is one thing that the robot does afford is that you not only have great visualization, but instead of two hands, you have five. Now, let me explain. So for those that are aware of robotics and those that are not, there's a table side associate, whether that be an attending surgeon, a physician assistant, whoever, in whatever environment you're in. And then there's a console surgeon. You know, table side, you have two hands, of course, but in the console, you have three. So you have a, a dual blade retractor that actually is acts as two fingers and you can move it around as you wish, and that helps stretch tissue. The second, you have a debakey and a needle driver where you can further stretch tissue. Now, why that becomes very relevant, we look at the, the failures of surgical ablation, also catheter-based ablation, if you want to think of it that way. It's the issues with tissue gaps. And these patients with persistent atrial fibrillation, they all have large atria. And probes or whatever device that you choose to use, whether that be epicardial or endocardial, there's always that issue with the occasional gap that you might see. The other issue, which I'm sure we'll talk about when we talk about pacemakers, is avoidance of Bachmann's bundle. And from a very lateral approach, you're right at the level of the right superior pulmonary vein the whole time. And you, you're not like a sternotomy case where you're actually looking down 
at the left atria, which, you know, just from ergonomics, oftentimes surgeons may be able to place that superior box lesion right across Bachman's bundle, but that perhaps is a detailed comment, but. Well, no, I would, I would actually, I would love to get into that, you know, so just, you know, cause there, there are plenty of surgeons listening. So, so let's just go through that again. So from that kind of lateral viewpoint, Mm-hmm. That roof line, right? You're basically you're speaking about the roof line when you're connecting the right and the left superior pulmonary vein. You're essentially saying that with the robot, you're able to stay posterior to Bachman's and run straight across. Correct. Is that correct? As opposed to with the sternotomy, let's say you have that kind of AP view, and you might be bringing that either the RF or the or the cryoprobe across Bachman's. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're talking about the superior box lesion or the roof line, basically connecting the right superior pulmonary vein to the left superior pulmonary vein and then crossing over to complete the box. So you're exactly right. So that is done very lateral. And if there's, there's video footage that is available and maybe your, your viewers can see that, but that lesion is very specific. And, you know, this is not. I don't take credit for that innovation and that knowledge. This is all Dr. Cox, who you've had on your on your right. podcast. Right. That he and many others who have worked on mapping to identify how best to mitigate junctional rhythms, follow this these very precise electrophysiologic basis of atrial fibrillation and disease and avoidance of injury. Remember, we're we're in the creation of injury business, right? We're here to cause ablation, apoptotic cell death, and scar formation to then mitigate or eliminate micro and macro orientated rotors. That's what we're doing. Right. And as long as we follow the appropriate roadmap, all surgeons and any operator should follow those principles. And if you follow those principles, you will get success. And that's all this does. So to, to reiterate, would it be helpful just to walk through the lesions a little bit? Absolutely. Absolutely. So after cardioplegic arrest, we expose the left atrium and start with the epicardial coronary sinus lesion. And I say this because we've developed this cadence to minimize time. People, surgeons, I've heard say, oh, it takes too much time. It's too much difficult to do to the left side and right side. Right. This doesn't take a lot of time if you plan efficiently. And so we open the left atrium. You'll do the epicardial coronary sinus lesion first, right on the coronary sinus. We will mark the ice ball if we, this is all cryo on the endocardial surface with a little blue ink. So we know as that thaws, where to go after the mitral line. Then we'll move and do a two and one lesion at the same time. We'll do the inferior box lesion extending from the orifice of the right inferior pulmonary vein to the above, just parallel and above the orifice of the left inferior pulmonary vein and extend the probe into the left atrial appendage. Okay. That's the two for one. And we're very precise to make sure there's no gaps. Then we do the lesion that you and I were just chatting about. We do that superior box lesion or roof line, wash in parallel with the right superior pulmonary vein connecting to the left superior pulmonary vein, and then we bend it like a hockey stick so that it curves underneath the previous line to avoid any gaps between the two. So there's a minimal overlap, but it's done inside the pulmonary veins itself. That creates the complete box. Each of these lesions on the left side are three minutes, and on the right side, they're two minutes. Essentially, the principle of 
after you see transmurality, at least 60 seconds after that. And then the mitral line or the endomitral lesion that is immediately opposite the coronary sinus lesion. And right on that blue line, that's the left-sided lesion set. Maybe I'll stop there in case you have any questions about that. Right. So you're talking about four three-minute lesions on the left side. You start with the coronary sinus, essentially finish your box, touch the base of the left atrial appendage, and then finish with your mitral isthmus line. And because we're using two operators, one at the console and one table side, and we've done this hundreds of times, right? we rehearse in advance of each lesion what the bend of the probe should look like. Gotcha. And so we minimize time between lesions. So 12 minutes to actually do the ablation, add a couple. And if your plegia time is every 20 minutes or every 30 minutes, it's more than enough time to do that. If you use things like Del Nido or other types of cardioplegic solutions or custodial or things like that, it becomes less relevant. But you know, our rough time to do the full left-sided lesions is approximately 16 minutes. And then we start, we open the, the right side, which we can talk about in a moment, and then give a dose of cardioplegia, which is usually less than 20 minutes time while we're doing the first tricuspid completion line. Pretty efficient. One kind of detailed question for those folks who are using retrograde. I personally don't do any robot work. So this this may be a totally silly question, but do folks use retrograde cardioplegia in robot cases? Is that at all an, an issue? Is that a topic that we should you know, I think for, for your your listeners and the surgeons in the audience, I think the most important thing is patient safety and your comfort to protect the heart. That's priority number one. Electrophysiologically, it's best, in my opinion, and perhaps of others that you mentioned certain names, to not have a catheter in, at least when you're doing the coronary sinus lesion and the mitral line, because you want that opposition. Sure. And you want to get that lesion all the way across the endocardium and the epicardium. And so if you're going to use a retrograde, you pull it out or pull it back while you're doing those lesions to be more electrophysiologically physiologically sound. That said, in the robotic cases, we don't use retrograde. Okay. And so it does allow that quite nicely and quite precisely. Okay. Any other tips or tricks on the left side that you've kind of come to learn over the hundreds of cases you've done? Any issues with the phrenic or anything with cannulation that... Great question. So that's an excellent question. And that gets that's a very precise question. So it's less of a concern with phrenic issues for the left side of lesion and more when we start talking about the right side of lesions. So as a preparatory element, I dissect out the SVC and IVC past the pericardial reflection in all cases mm-hmm. and actually use the pericardium as a trap door. I'll bring it all the way down and bring it out almost at a planar position to the right superior pulmonary vein. So it's almost like a a flat sort of trampoline, if you will. Sure. And by doing so, it basically protects the the phrenic nerve. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yes, absolutely. Or protects the phrenic nerve. So the phrenic nerve is usually at least two centimeters away from any type of operative field. But yes, by having five hands, or at least four, if you think about if you're going to use a retractor as a retractor and not as a dynamic instrument, which we use it for, that's part of the the teamwork. As the lesion is being applied, once it's applied, secondary job is to keep it stationary and not drift and also protect any tissues, anything coming close to the fracture. Okay. And do you typically put anything 
in the sinus to kind of expand that floor of the left atrium or is that left open and you're freezing endocardially on that floor line? Do you put dot a four by four back there or anything like that typically? Uh, no. Yeah. Okay. We don't, we don't put anything you inside needed to. at all. Yeah. Let me reframe your question. That technique of putting something behind, why are you doing that? It's not to protect the esophagus. Usually. Right. It's actually to stretch out the tissues, right? Sure. It's, it's to allow that counterpoint to make the endocardium flatter so that the lesion application is more precise. With the robot, you don't have to do that because you basically physically stretch out the tissue and make sure there's no tissue gaps under direct vision, looking precisely to make sure there's no gaps. Right. You know, just kind of circling back to what you said earlier, with the greater than 95% freedom from AFib results, it really, it the only thing I can even think of that approaches that was the original cut and sew data that that Cox shared with us decades ago. And it it just it speaks so much to the point that that you've made a couple of times now, which is the gaps. Like we know with a scalpel and a and a scissor, there are no gaps, right? And it's like finally this data speaks to the fact that if you not just attempt to get there, but truly create these homogenous lesions, these, I mean, perfect lesions, honestly, that that would then mimic a knife or a, a scissor, that you can get back to those results that we first saw two decades ago. I mean, I think that's such a, just such a, an awesome point of, of, of this whole paper and this conversation. So sorry. So I was just getting goosebumps talking about that. So let's jump over to the right side. And I'm, I'm sorry if I'm jumping the gun, but arrested, Beating, yeah. what is your... It's arrested and not beating. I mean, respecting many different techniques and a lot of surgeons taking the clamp off and doing the right side of lesions beating. I understand that. And I think there's that's something that, you know, honestly, I did a long time ago. Astronomy cases, oh, let's hurry up and get, you know, yeah. microprojection and all that stuff. Myocardial protection is so good and we can do all kinds of complicated things these days, why would you mess with that? You know, this is an electrophysiologic operation. Avoid blood contact if you can. Keep drainage excellent. So no, I do these all on the arrested heart. And it, it doesn't add very much time, to be honest. So, sure. so the lesion is, so we have bicable cannulation in all patients, obviously. And the important thing to know is that the, and I think all your surgeons hopefully know this, but in case they don't, is that the SA node is not just that little yellow thing at the cable atrial junction, right? The SVC junction. It's the mid-right atrial. And that mid-right atrial body extends for probably five to seven centimeters from the SA nodal position along the body of the right atrium and about three to four centimeters, up to three to four centimeters towards the right atrial appendage. So there's a area that's a square of about anywhere by three by five centimeters, depending on the atrium, particularly these big, very large ones that extend essentially the cephalad third of the body of the right atrium if you're staring at it. Sure. So the atriotomy is not a tangential atriotomy that back in training when we were doing tricuspid valve surgery, oh yeah, you make your abdomen. (laughs) You know, you get open like that because it can perpetuate potential junctional rhythms. So this is a vertical atriotomy extending basically at the one-third mark, the caught one-third, directly to the margin, of course, getting not getting close to the, the right coronary artery, and then down through the crista terminalis. Okay. And so it's a vertical incision. And then the completion line of that is done endocardially with the cryo, 
Uh, usually at that time, I give cardioplegia, but that, that's up to any of the, the surgeons. Then the second lesion is at the base of that vertical atriotomy, lateral and posterior, using basically a right angle of the base probe and extending that into the superior vena cava. And then once that's in, pulling laterally so that you avoid any blood contact, you're very lateral and you're far from the SA node. One of the errors sometimes in a sternotomy case is if that probe pulls up towards the patient, towards the surgeon, and the extension of the freeze bubbles over onto the SA node or onto the mid-right atrial body. So this is very posterior, very lateral, and it avoids any contact. And this is where the tag team helps because I, you know, I can move any kind of tissue away from the phrenic nerve. And this is where phrenic nerve issues can become an issue. After that lesion, we do a, a literally a parallel lesion, whether that's completely endocardial and medially, that you don't even see the lesion on the epicardial surface, but endocardial medially. Or if it's what you see in our videos, is that we go at the very, very most anterior aspect of the margin of the right trim to get that big right atrial appendage rotor. And it's literally parallel to the SVC lesion to completely avoid that whole mid-right atrial body. And then the IVC lesion is from the end of the vertical atriotomy, directly lateral and posterior and into the SVC. And I extend those beyond the pericardial reflection on both sides. So the, the obvious question is, well, how do you do that if you're snaring? Yeah. Right? Right. We don't snare. Okay. Yeah, that was definitely a question I was going <laughs> to ask you. And so we have, we, and the little, little secret to that is we use vacuum assist on all patients. Okay. It's a SVC cannula through the right internal jugular and not high up. Or if you put cannulas and you can put it fairly lateral and superior. And with vacuum assist, the SVC basically collapses on itself. And so you, you don't get a, you get very minimal effluent from the SVC. And then we take a multi-stage venous cannula with multiple holes made by one specific manufacturer we use. And then that goes straight up. And then that cannula, the tip of it, I put at the orifice of the uh, So we drain the IVC and the SVC and the, any kind of effluent coming from the right side. And I put that low and down. So that way we get complete drainage and there's no blood contact because the venous cannula is there. And that's kind of our, our little technique to avoid blood contact, but also allow the probe to go deep into to both SVC and IVC. Gotcha. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what do you, do you use? Vessel loops? You use umbi tapes? Neither. <laughs> <laughs> and then during that time, are, I mean, these are all kind of very technical details. What is your flow like? Is it full flow while you're doing the full the right side? Or you're, you don't have any issues with drainage or flow or anything like that? You know, ninety five percent of the time it's full flow. But you know, yes, if they get a lot of flow coming back or something like that, then we would drop flow a little bit. We usually, you know, flow. We use cerebral oximetry and peripheral oximetry for all cases in the right end. As long as we've got good oximetry and we're at least a 1.8 index or so, we can adjust flow accordingly. Okay. There was one comment that you made earlier, just kind of in passing. I'd like to kind of pick your brain about it a little bit. When you mentioned you give cardioplegia during the, the tricuspid isthmus lesion, when you're in theory kind of next to that right coronary, is that something that you, you've started doing because there was a, a problem with the right coronary or is that something you've always done? Can you kind of shed some light on that for us? 
Sure. So that's a very good question. So there's not been much in the way of problem with that. It's actually more of a timing element because okay. we've done all the left side of lesions and now we're doing the right side of lesions. But you know, let's be honest, your your probe, it is a cryoprobe and it's in the general vicinity of the right coronary artery. And in sometimes a natural technical physical thing is to push tissue. Right. One of the little things about the cryo, you don't have to push. It freezes it. But the natural thing about pushing, particularly if you have a retractor or anything else in the vicinity, if you're not careful, you can push the tissue because you're thinking, oh, I got to stretch the tissue and I got to push it. I'm speaking more for open cases. Sure. And that can, if you're not careful, cause some cryo or cryothermic injury to the right coronary, particularly in one that's very superficial and very medial, I guess, close to the margin of the right atrium. So we've incorporated two steps. One is to apply the cryo, start freezing, pull the, the tissue okay. immediately. Right, right, right. And give cardioplegia at the same time. And that's not only gives an effective lesion and it doesn't have any blood contact, but it completely eliminates the fear of that. Right. Particularly just, in those that are right dominant. Sure. That makes sense. And just to clarify, you're you're not giving warm cardioplegia, right? You're giving no, cold cardioplegia. Cool, yeah, just yeah. to make sure we're all talking about the same thing. Okay. Correct. Okay. So we thank you for going through all that. That's super helpful. That essentially is the sequence for somebody who has standalone AFib, right? This is a standalone setup. More than, or I guess 75% of your cases were not standalone. Do you mind walking us through kind of the most common variation, which is the the mitral when you're planning on doing a mitral or mitral tricuspid? Or, yeah, yeah. Why why don't why don't we just go through a kind of the, the the sequence when you're doing this with the mitral? So, in fact, it's a pretty easy question. It's the same. <laughs> okay. I do the mazes first, all the mazes okay. first. And then we go back and do all the valve stuff, whatever valve stuff we have to do. Why is that we want that precise thing across the native annulus, you know, that mitral line and the tricuspid sure. line. Okay. You want that precise. And I don't want to, I don't want to ring in there while I'm doing that. Right. Because then you, you've kind of shortchanged yourself. Right. Right. So I'll do the maze lesions first and then we'll do the valve work last. I'll do the maze lesions. So, so I, I didn't, I neglected one important thing is that left atrial appendage management. We haven't talked about that. Right. Before. Not yet. Not yet. Um, <laughs> small topic. So yes, 100%, you have to address the left atrial appendage. Please do so. But left side of lesion, right side of lesion, by the time right side of lesions are done, the left side is thawed. So before I close the right atrium itself, because we've got a good vacuum, I go back into the left atrium and before any mitral or any other work, I'll close the left atrial appendage. As you perhaps may or may not have seen our technique of basically taking the left atrial appendage and right. sort of reverse intersuscepting it. Yeah, into, yeah, know, it's pretty into, cool. Into the atrium. And then this is not a running over and over proline, which right. tears, right? This is a CV4 Gore-Tex or polytetrafluoroethylene. Sorry for using the manufacturer. Sure, yeah, yeah. And it's important to note that this is not a endoatrial commencement. It's actually an endoleft atrial commencement. And what do I mean by that? That when you intersuscept the left atrial appendage and you're staring right at it, you'll see the conversion, which if you put it down, the os or the anatomic os is not always the same thing as the transition of the left atrial appendage. That makes sense. Sure. The endoatrial os is usually a lot more 
proximal to that. I'll use that, but not yet. So the first bite is to, to grab inside the left atrial appendage and then take that one bite, grab the body of the left atrial appendage, and then grab the other aspect of it. So essentially, you're holding the left atrial appendage in itself by taking the bites through it. So it's physically impossible for it to open up. That makes sense. And you're basically completely obliterating it. And that's the first layer. Then you basically take a, it's like a Lambert stitch and bring that area that you've left and bringing it together. And so that's taking that essentially a Lambert horizontal mattress and bringing the endoatrial tissue together in a homogeneous and longitudinal line and then tying it. So that's our left atrial appendage management for all cases and all cases in this series that uh, you're referencing. After that is complete, then we'll do the mitral, mitral tricuspid, the aortic valve, whatever is required. But in that way, all the tissues have been thawed and then you just do your mitral or whatever technique you do. Now, in the case of tricuspid, I'll keep that atrium open and then do the tricuspid ring or repair or whatever is appropriate through the same vertical atriotomy, the same drainage technique. Okay. That's a perfect segue into my next question, which is now that you have such a high normal sinus rhythm rate in these patients, you've managed the LAA. How do you manage their anticoagulation? So I will answer that carefully. And what I'm about to say is not, I don't have randomized national clinical trial data, but I think when you'll hear what I'm about to say, I think it's warranted to look for this. Okay. Because we've been closing this homogeneously and longitudinally for all these years, many years ago, we looked at this as part of a quality improvement initiative. We used to anticoagulate everybody just like everybody else does sure. or did at the time. And perfect sinus rhythm, no problem. And had a patient who was an 80-year-old, had a beautiful maze. It was great. It was done for two months. He was walking around. And then a primary doctor said, well, you've got AFib. It's on your chart. you got to be on Coumadin. Put him on Coumadin, you know, went to do something outside, tripped, fell, hit his head and died. Now you got to ask yourself, why are we anticoagulating patients in normal sinus rhythm with a perfectly closed left atrial appendage? I didn't have a good answer for that. So we did a quality initiative. We compared anticoagulation to anticoagulation. Lo and behold, they did at least the same. And so we studied this, as you've probably seen some of our previous publications, and found that the longitudinal incidence of stroke was less in that group and actually less than 1% over time. And in fact, we only had I believe two strokes in our entire longitudinal follow-up population over three, uh, one year, but extending out to three to four years. And that was a hypertensive stroke. It was not an embolic stroke. And so internally with our multidisciplinary group, we've, we've stopped anticoagulating all patients. The only patients that we anticoagulate with following this technique are those that either have a hypercoagulable state, either have a mechanical prosthesis that warrant or a previous indication like PE, DVT, or something sure. like that. Those are the only patients we anticoagulate. The obvious exception is if they have a bioprosthesis in the mitral position that meet guideline-directed three- to six-month ACCHA guidelines for oral anticoagulation with warfarin, we would do that for that period. But all repair patients or all standalone patients go home with no anticoagulation. Okay. That's our technique. It's, it's up to the comfort of the, each surgeon and the, sure. and as we incorporate it, as you'll, as you may note, there's a clear paragraph in the HRS expert consensus statement that 
you know, you can probably figure out how that got written. That basically clearly states that that's a decision between the physician and the patient on appropriateness. Right. You know, it's interesting. Basically, another really amazing thing about about your paper is that there's really functionally not a blanking period. You know, I mean, we, when we talk about RF, when we talk about hybrid, anything that kind of essentially that's not providing a, a perfect maze, if you will, we have to wait that that three months. We have to make sure that we're that what we see is what we get. And what's remarkable is that there really wasn't a blinking period in in your series. And that, I guess, makes more sense when you speak to your practice, your your team's practice, as far as stopping anticoagulation, you know, in the hospital and then letting their normal sinus rhythm persist, if you will. So I would say to some degree that's true, but I, I don't want to give too much credit to ourselves. In the report, we are doing 24-hour continuous ECG monitoring by either Holter or loop recorder or pacemaker if they they had one before. We start that. If they have an implantable, we will record that as our time point at one, two, three, and six months. 100% of everybody in this series got that 24-hour ECG at nine months and continued follow-up up to five years. But in patients that were in the process of still having on on amiodarone, which we, we continue the amiodarone for three months, unless there's a rare situation, which is handful of patients that needed sotalol because of an allergy. But we basically had the antiarrhythmics for three months and then all of them were stopped. You know, that is, I wouldn't count that as fair because they're still oral antiarrhythmics. So I wouldn't give us too much credit for that. (laughs) And those are monitored in with ECG time points, but also clinical follow-up. But the 24 hours started after six months, unless they had an implantable. And if they had it, we would still report it. So the data is the data. It's very true. In fact, it's not me calculating. Our team is right. that right. And, it's, and it's blinded by our EP docs are the ones that are actually you know, reporting the rhythm endpoint. So let's kind of go big picture now. So let's say you have somebody who is not a robotic surgeon. Let's say they're like most surgeons. They're learning AFib surgery on the job. Right. Because, you know, unfortunately, in many training programs, it's not an emphasis in training. Mm-hmm. How do you get from that space to where your team is? What do you think is realistic? What are the steps you would recommend for somebody to go through? Can you kind of guide us through that so that somebody who's listening to this can say, you know what, I'm pretty motivated by this talk. I want to get out and and provide the same level of care for my patients using this. Well, that's an interesting question. So let me answer it in two parts. Okay. One is, please remember... There's no magic lesion set that we're doing here. This is a cryocoxmase lesion set. That can be done by every surgeon today. And this, the only thing I would suggest is get the exposure, place the lesions the way you've seen us place the lesions, and do so with minding the gap, if you use the UK London underground term, and that just make sure there's no gaps. And do that very precisely, but see what you're doing see what you're doing. And it's very, very important that you follow those steps. We have videos. You can look at them. Everybody's welcome to come to our site to look at them. You don't have to come here. Just look at the videos and replicate it. That's really all it is. It doesn't have to be done robotically. Now, all that said, so surgeons can do this tomorrow, right now. And and many other you know leaders in AFib, including yourself, you already know all the lesions and there's no magic thing here. I think 
if you have a fib and it's an appropriate case to do and the surgeon's comfortable, just do the lesions. You can do these in a very short period of time and you're investing not just in the rhythm endpoint, as I'm sure you've said on your, your podcast by many times, this is for the patient's longitudinal survival. So why wouldn't you do a maze? Don't wait for it to be done robotically. You got a patient that's got AFib, particularly persistent AFib, you have an opportunity to change their survival right now. The evidence is very, very strong. So do it. Now, I'll come, climb off the our United <laughs> soapbox that we have together and now answer your specific question. We're a training site for robotic cardiac surgery. We have folks visit us all the time. The important thing is first, if you want to do this robotically, which it doesn't have to be done. If you're doing a minimally invasive operation, you can do this in a minimally invasive way. A little harder because it's harder to fit everything through and you don't have extra pair of hands. But you know, robotic cardiac surgery is here to stay. If it's if it's something that is of interest to any of your listeners and any cardiac surgeon, there are many different pathways to have this addressed. The STS has a training program. The AATS has a training program, a fellowship. We're humbled to be a site for both. And you can come to any of the many, many robotic surgeons around the country to get your program started. Once you've started and you're comfortable doing, say, a mitral, you can add this as a layer pretty much right away, I think. And there's no, as long as you've identified the pitfalls and you're comfortable, then this can be done with the transthoracic clamp. It can be done with endo balloon or whatever technique you're using, but it can easily be added as a procedure offering once you're already established as a robotic program. And, and so how to start doing robotics is a much broader discussion, but you've got to, it, it's usually steeped in having access to mitral cases first sure. uh, to just have a team and experience to get things going. That makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. So that leads us to, I think the last topic we're going to cover here, I don't want to take too much of your time, which is we continue to have data that speaks to how well the Cox maze lesion set works. We have randomized trials for mitral that says it's a class one indication for cabbage and AVR class two indication. I just wanted to ask kind of one more layer, which is we talked about the LAA. We talked about your approach. We haven't really spoken about the Laos three trial, but I would love to hear from you as somebody who's who's integral to the STS guidelines and all the guidelines that come out. How do you think that will affect what we're going to be recommending or expecting of surgeons moving forward for those who are treating AFib? Really simple question, right? <laughs> so not speaking for any professional society, the Laos three trial and other trials, including an STS investigation that linked to the CMS mm -hmm. the, that you may recall that was in JAMA, really clearly shows that the LAA management, however it's done, again, these, these trials were not specific to how it was done, isn't, it's very clear that that's an integral component to longitudinal morbidity reduction in patients that have atrial fibrillation presenting at the time of cardiac surgery. And much like my previous comments, so you have a one-on-a-lifetime chance, not your lifetime, their lifetime chance, to change that degree of morbidity and to some degree mortality, survival long-term. So why wouldn't you ever always consider to manage the left atrial appendage, regardless if you do a maze or not? Now, the caveat of the data is that, you know, a substantial portion of all of these examines, including the last three, were also maze patients. 
And so is the outcome the LAA or is the outcome the maze? That will require further study to examine. And some of that is pending. But regardless, if you're there and they have AFib, please at least address the left atrial appendage. Now we have significant randomized evidence as well as longitudinal registry evidence, which classifies by your leading question, you already know the answer, that classifies as level A evidence. So in the next iteration of the guidelines, we have to recognize level A evidence, and it would be not an unreasonable supposition that that will become a recommendation to manage the left atrial appendage if you're there for a procedure. That's awesome. I heard it from you first. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I'm not speaking on behalf of the society or the authors of any said right. that should want to be created, dot, 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 but it's the evidence. Yeah, absolutely. Part of, part of any expert consensus or consensus, a clinical practice guideline document, that the whole purpose is to honor the evidence and make it a recommendation as appropriate. Sure. Makes all the sense in the world to me. I love it. Well, gosh, Dr. Badwar, thank you so much for your time today. I know we've gone over, but you know, I can't thank you enough for sharing all your all your wisdom with, with us about robotic maze, AFib in general, the guidelines. So thank you again for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure, Armin. It's been enjoyable. Uh, you know, we're both zealots along with everybody else you probably have on your podcast. So I, I just hope that it's of a minor help to anybody that's listening. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Pleasure. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com, and check out our Twitter feed, at allthingsafib. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcasts and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.